Is it true of you? That he is all we want? That he is all you want? I trust that is true. And that when we sing, that we sing with authenticity. So uh, let's go to the one that we want, that we have chosen as our God. Let's pray. Our God and Father, you indeed are beautiful beyond description. You are the high and holy and exalted one. You are the spirit of truth, Lord. You have given us the spirit of truth. That's who you call the Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, by your spirit, I pray that today that you will help us to open up this passage and may your spirit be our teacher. Lord, empower us for service that we might be pleasing in your sight. And we thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me begin this morning by shaking us awake. No long introduction, no engaging story to sort of set the tone, no vain attempts or veiled attempts or lame attempts at humor, and I'm sure some of you are breathing a sigh of relief about that one. But on this, the day after the 20th year since the most deadly terrorist attack on our soil by the hands of orthodox Muslims, not extremists, orthodox Muslims, I want us to turn away from the horror that our country is becoming, and I want us to turn to the Lord. I want to jump right into our passage today because there is an amazing set of verses in front of us, profound words, and the title is a controversial one, so let's just start right there. It's called Claim the Privilege, for how else can God's people see their relationship to Him in any other way but privileged? As we know, the Lord has never changed, has He? He is the same yesterday and today and forever. He has blessed Israel with an awesome, privileged status, and He has blessed us, members of the body of Christ. If you are a member of the body of Christ this morning, you have been blessed with an awesome, privileged status as well. In our day and age where the culture demands certain sectors of our society apologize for being born into a certain class or race or nationality, I think it's time for every one of God's people, regardless of melanin shade, to see ourselves as privileged. But we have a difficult time with this, don't we, calling ourselves privileged? And why is that? I think there's two reasons for it. First, we as Christians tend to forget who we are. How many of us, not to show of hands, but how many of us have wholeheartedly embraced the identity that the Lord has given us. And I would venture to say, not very many of us in our culture. And that's why we have descriptors to identify what kind of Christian we think we are. For example, there are the woke Christians, so-called. There are the so-called gay Christians. Now, we know that those who identify as gay Christians are really not Christians at all, according to Scripture. We have conservative, we have liberal, we have progressive, and on and on and on. And may we consider ourselves as privileged because we fully embrace and we celebrate the identity that the Lord has given us. And by the way, among many other things, 
To celebrate the identity means that we don't put descriptors in front of the title Christian. We're a Christian, and that's it. And second, we forget or we refuse to say whose we are. This is a blow to our independence, to our self-reliance. It's dashed to pieces when we say that God owns us because we are His. But let me let you in on a little secret. God not only owns Christians, He owns everybody, doesn't He? You know, Psalm 24.1 tells us the divine truth. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all those who dwell in it. From the most powerful, godly saint, all the way down to the worst of the bad actors, all the way through history, He owns us all. And though He owns everybody, He has conferred a privileged status only on those who are in His family. And not everybody is a son or daughter of God. It's only those who, by repentance of their sin and embracing the Christ of the gospel and embracing Christ himself, are those who are in the family of God. But hear me well, though. I'm not saying that any human being is better than any other human being. Not at all. See, because we all possess equal worth, equal dignity, and so much more. See, because all of us are imagers of God, every last person on the planet. But knowing that truth does not change this truth one iota, that God's people are privileged. And we're going to see that today in our passage, Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 1 to 14. So if you don't have it out yet, please take your Bibles, you know, paper or pixel, doesn't matter, but just open up your Bibles to Deuteronomy 1 to 14. And my prayer for all of us today is that we who are in the family of God, when we conclude our corporate time of worship together, that we might hold our heads up just a little bit higher without elevating our noses and that we might stoop a little bit lower so that we might become better servants of Christ to everyone. For after all, if our Lord and our teacher was able to wash feet, even the ones that betrayed him, we can do the same. So let's get started. In our passage for today, Moses centers his words on the Lord's communication in two forms. The first is verbal communication. Moses describes this in various ways, such as statutes and rules and the Ten Commandments. Now, we could spend a lot of time kind of breaking these things down, these different descriptors down, but let's refer to these privileges as privileges of knowing God's will. All of these verbal communications, knowing God's will, that's the privilege that God's people have. God communicating His will to His privileged people is profound, and we're going to see this as we go along. Now, the second communication was in the form of the Lord's being formless. Moses reminds them of several things in their past all throughout the first four chapters of Deuteronomy. His grace, His holiness, His spiritual nature, especially when they were camped at the foot of Mount Sinai. See, there, were no, there was no form on that mountain, only a voice. But God came near them. And so let's call this the privilege of His presence. Now, of all the people in the world, God came to them. God came to Israel. Again, profound truth. And so let's keep these two things in mind as we look at the three facets 
of this gem called privilege. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 1 to 5, we witness Israel's privilege of hearing the will of God so that they may live and take possession of the promised land. In verses 6 to 8, Moses points out the second facet. The people are to obey the Lord so that the nations will sit up and take notice, a witness to that. And then in verses 9 to 14, the people are to live out the privilege in front of their children and their grandchildren so that they might learn to fear the Lord. So let's read Deuteronomy 4, 1 to 5. And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I'm teaching you, and do them that you may live and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. Your eyes have seen what the Lord did at Baal Peor, for the Lord your God destroyed from among you all the men who followed the Baal of Peor. But you who held fast to the Lord your God are all alive today. See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do them in the land that you're entering to take possession of it. Now, notice how Moses begins this chapter. This portion of Moses' sermon does not begin in a vacuum. It's like, you know, when we open up Scripture in the middle of, like, say, Paul's letter, for example, Romans chapter 5, verse 1. You know, that chapter begins with the word, therefore. And, you know, if you're a good Bible student, you know that when you see the word, therefore, you've got to find out what? What the therefore is, therefore, exactly. And so in other words, you've got to kind of go back into what was said previously to understand what Paul's doing here. And so that's what Moses is saying here. So let's put it in this way. Moses says, in essence, in light of what I just told you, the 40 years delay from entering the land because of your sin, the victories he gave you over the Amorites, and the reminder that because of my sin, then I'm not going to enter into the promised land with you. Pay close attention. Give heed to what I'm about to say. Now, Moses has many very important things to tell the people. And what are they? They're statutes, first of all, rules that carry with it God's authority, divine authority, and also the word rules in the ESV. Literally, they are customs and traditions that are tied into the idea of doing justice. Now, if they do these rules, do this, these customs, they will be able to provide justice for every person in Israel. And as an aside, how many in our country are clamoring for justice? You know, justice is a big buzzword everywhere in our culture and even in the church, right? And my answer for justice in our secular culture is simply this. We will never achieve it. We're not going to achieve justice. Why? Because we have refused to live God's ways. And tragically, God's justice is so often misunderstood even in the church. See, this is almost universally understood as racial justice. But you know what? The only justice that God sees is His justice. His Word is a standard, not some arbitrary rule according to melanin shade or according to one's lived experience. Enough said about that. we got to go on. So let's continue in verse 1, chapter 4. 
Pay close attention, Moses says, to the statutes and rules that I am teaching you. Now, what an amazing thing this is. And we think about the law, right? We think of heavy-handedness, but that's not the case here. Moses is the pastor-teacher par excellence. Moses lays out what God wants and then teaches his people how to apply his will to their lives. Now, this is not a heavy-handed whip in one hand and lightning bolt in the other. If you step off the path even one time, I'm going to zap you type thing. No. Why, this is what pastors are to be doing every Sunday in the churches all around the world. As we stand behind the sacred desk every Sunday, this is what we're doing. We're supposed to be doing what Moses did to the people many centuries ago. We're supposed to tell the people what God wants and then explain to them the sense of what it means and then tell them how to apply it. That's all it is. That's what Moses is doing. And this is what we attempt to do here at Grace United. It's my wholehearted attempt every Sunday to do exactly what Moses did to the people then. God's pastors are not to add to or take away anything pertaining to God's Word. God has charged His servants to give His people the whole counsel of God. And this includes parts that are pleasant and parts that are not so pleasant of God's Word. Moses reminds the people in verses 3 and 4, yet another not-so-pleasant part of their history. When God's wife, His people, committed adultery with the stranger called Baal Peor. Now, this lustful account is written in Numbers 25, 1 to 3. If you want to turn back a book, you can do that, or you can just listen to these verses. Here is the account. While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to sacrifice to their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. So what we have here is an extreme example of faithlessness, spiritual adultery, with Baal Peor, many of God's people yoked themselves to those gods. Now, thankfully, not every man committed spiritual adultery with these gods, but God killed, He did this, 24,000 men as a result. Now, some might think, well, that's pretty harsh of you, Lord. That's pretty much of an overreaction, you might say. After all, it was just one episode, wasn't it, where the people committed idolatry, spiritual adultery? But God labeled it as whoring after another God. Again, spiritual adultery. Now, I don't have to tell any of us how painful adultery is and the damage it does to a marriage, do I? See, God considers His people to be in a marriage relationship with Him. And what a privilege and responsibility that is. Now, those of us who have been in or who are now experiencing a marriage relationship know the times of profound privilege of being married to our husband, to our wife, or at least on the wedding day, right? <laughs> profound privilege. Now, I think it's safe to say that no one who willingly goes to the altar in a marriage 
hates their bride or their groom and wishes that they weren't at the altar. Would you agree with this? It's a profound privilege to be there on that day. And no wonder God says to Moses, pay close attention to what I'm telling you. You have a profound privilege. You, have a, you need to stay loyal to me because I am your husband. And then continue staying loyal to me as you enter the land I'm giving you, that you may live out my ways in my home, in my land, in my sacred space. Now, the bottom line here is that Israel's place of privilege comes with a price. They pay close attention to his ways and do them as they take possession of the Lord's land. And this is a fulfillment of a promise that the Lord made to the descendants of Abraham. Now, having seen the first facet of the gem called privilege the Lord gave to his people, let's look at the second facet, that the people are to obey the Lord. Why? So that the nations will sit up and take notice as a witness. Let's look at verses 6 through 8. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who when they hear these statutes, they will say, surely this nation is great and wise and understanding. For what great nation is there that has a God so near it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon Him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as this law that I set before you today? So here we are, Mechanicsville, Virginia, 21st century. Do you see anything that's kind of odd about these verses? Isn't Moses here making more of God's oppressive rules more than it's warranted? How do Moses describe these rules? They are Israel's wisdom and understanding as the pagans peek in on how God's people live their lives. He goes on to say that when the pagans hear these rules, they will marvel at God's people who would obey them. The pagans will call them a great nation. They will call God's people wise and understanding for doing these things. The pagans will see that God is close to His people because they obey His statutes. So Moses is saying that when God's people obey His ways, the pagans will sit up and take notice and their desire that what Israel has and with their relationship with Yahweh, that's what they want too. But how can this be? Certainly anyone would think that being loyal to God's ways and living in obedience to Him means that they're living in a a privileged status. Isn't that just a little bit over the top? Isn't that just a little bit overblown? As we know, when we study Scripture, we need to take into account the worldview of the Scripture writers. Dr. Daniel Block has done some research into the religious worldview of those living back in Moses' time. He unearthed a prayer written by a person expressing agony over his or her plight. Now, it's lengthy and it's repetitious, but this prayer to every God is worth the listen. Again, this is the mindset. This is the the, the spiritual mindset of the pagans back in the day of Moses. May the fury of my Lord's heart be quieted toward me. May the God who is not known be quieted toward me. May the goddess who is not known be quieted toward me. 
May the God whom I know or do not know be quieted toward me. May the goddess whom I know or do not know be quieted toward me. May my God and goddess be quieted toward me. May the God who has become angry with me be quieted toward me. May the goddess who has become angry with me be quieted toward me. In ignorance I have eaten that forbidden of my God. In ignorance I have set foot on that prohibited by my goddess. O Lord, my transgressions are many, great are my sins. O my God, my transgressions are many, great are my sins. My transgressions I have committed, indeed I do not know. The sin that I have done, indeed I do not know. The forbidden thing that I have eaten, indeed I do not know. The prohibited place on which I have set foot, indeed I do not know. The Lord in the anger of his heart looked at me. The God in the rage of his heart confronted me. When the goddess was angry with me, she, became, she made me become ill. The God whom I know or do not know has oppressed me. The goddess whom I know or do not know has placed suffering upon me. Although I am constantly looking for help, no one takes me by the hand. When I weep, they do not come to my side. I utter laments, but no one hears me. I am troubled. I am overwhelmed. I cannot see. O oh my God, merciful one, I address you prayer, ever inclined to me. I kiss the feet of my goddess. I crawl before you. How long, O oh my goddess, whom I know or do not know, before your hostile heart be will be quieted? Man is dumb. He knows nothing. Mankind, everyone that exists, what does he know? Whether he is committing sin or doing good, he does not even know. O oh my Lord, do not cast your servant down. He is plunged into the waters of a swamp. Take him by the hand. The sin that I have done, turn into goodness. The transgression that I have committed, let the wind carry away. My many misdeeds strip off like a garment. O oh my God, my transgressions are seven times seven. Remove my transgressions, O oh my goddess. My transgressions are seven times seven. Remove my transgressions, O God, whom I do or do not know. My transgressions are seven times seven. Remove my transgressions, O Goddess, whom I do or do not know. My transgressions are seven times seven. Remove my transgressions. Remove my transgressions, and I will sing your praise. May your heart, like the heart of a real mother, be quieted toward me, like a real mother and a real father. May it be quieted toward me. Can you feel the anguish of this one? This sincere worshiper back in the day. He or she has real God-given guilt because they have sinned. But there's no way to get rid of it. He or she does not know what he or she has done. And there's no assurance of forgiveness. There is no comfort. There is no peace here. You know, Moses was well aware of the mindset of the pagans in his day. You know, he lived in the house of Pharaoh for 40 years. Talk about paganism. And then for 40 years, he lived in another place, in Midian, in another religion, for another 40 years. So what relief there is to know what the one Lord specifically wants. Though Deuteronomy doesn't include much, by the way, what Moses wrote in Exodus and Leviticus. But the Torah does specifically 
talk about and outline a sacrificial system that the pagans just did not have. It would be a profound thing indeed for the pagans to witness the way the Lord was working in his people and and the statutes that the people had for them to obey. In short, Israel knows what the Lord wants of them and tells them when they've gotten off the path and how to get right with him. Once again, the pagans knew nothing of this. But how many in our day, even in the church, seem to want to hold the Lord, the true and living God, at arm's length? They want him out there and just leave them alone in their daily affairs. Of course, they want him to be there for them when there's a need, you know, a personal need, a felt need. Lord, come with me and come to me and meet my need there. And oh, by the way, you know, since I'm a good person, I get to go to heaven, so welcome me there at the gates of heaven. But otherwise, just be at the perimeter of my life. Let me run my life the way I want. The church as a whole seems to desire to be just like the pagans in many ways, but their minds, in their minds, they think, they think that, but just have enough religion to make God happy. But that is not the way of God's people to show Him love and appreciation and worship, is it? That's not God's way. The Lord Jesus could not have made it any clearer. God's way is for His people to give Him loyal, grateful, heartfelt obedience. He told His disciples in John 14, 21, and so turn with me there. You know, keep your finger in Deuteronomy. We're going to kind of flip back and forth between Deuteronomy and John. But John 14, 21 If you don't have it memorized, I encourage you to memorize this verse. It's an amazing verse, amazing truth, what Jesus talks about here concerning our intimacy with Him and what it means to love Him. And Jesus told His disciples the night before He was crucified, things that were on His heart, very important to Him, He said, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. See, as followers of Jesus, how we need to obey the Lord because we love him, because he loved us first. The pagans in Moses, they marveled at how great and wise and understanding Yahweh's people were. And so too in our day. People who love the Lord and show it by loyal heartfelt obedience will stand out. Isn't that true? Many will not appreciate it, but there will be some who will say, I want me some of that. Let me make a comment about Christ followers living close to the Lord. Though there are many who would want to have the Lord being held at arm's length, there are many others who want to be close to the Lord as we sang the song earlier this morning. Part of my devotional life right now includes memorizing and meditating on John chapter 14, an amazing, amazing passage. And here the Lord mentions His relationship to the Father a lot. And what blew me away recently is what Jesus said regarding how we as Christ's disciples can get close to the Father. John 14, 23 says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him, and we will make our home with him. Did you catch that? Did you see that? Isn't it amazing? You know, I was, 
I've been used to, you know, for a long time, used to knowing about the Holy Spirit living in my life and, and how that's my connection with the Lord. But Jesus' words here are almost unbelievable when you think about it. If a Christian keeps the word of Christ, Jesus says, two things will happen in their relationship with the Father. First, the Father will love that person for obedience to the Lord, loyal obedience to the Lord, not perfect, but loyal obedience to the Lord's ways is Christ-like behavior. Again, not perfect behavior, but Christ-like behavior. The Father knows that we're not perfect, isn't that true? But He loves us when we are loyally keeping the word of His Son. Second, the Lord tells the Christian who keeps the word of Christ that the Father and the Son come to the one and they will make their home with that son or daughter of God. Isn't that amazing when you think about that? And what this does for me, it makes me long for greater obedience to the Lord and His ways. See, because not only does the Spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit dwell within me, but the Father and the Son are with me at home as well. All three persons of the blessed Trinity make their home in the believer who keeps the word of Christ. And my friends, if you ever long for greater intimacy with the Lord, what do you do? Get busy obeying the Lord's word. And just like the pagans who witnessed and marveled at the closeness Yahweh was with His obedient people, so the pagans around us will notice when we keep the Word of Christ, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit makes His home in us. Amazing truth. Now, we've seen two facets of the gem of privilege Yahweh has given His people. Now, let's briefly look at a third facet that the people of God were to live out the ways of the Lord in front of their kids and their grandkids, passing on a godly heritage so that they would fear the Lord. Let's look at verses 9 to 14. Only take care, keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children, how on the day that you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, The Lord said to me, gather the people to me, that I may let them hear my words, so they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth, and that they may teach their children so. And you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain, while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness, cloud, and gloom. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. And He declared to you His covenant, which He commanded you to perform, that is, the Ten Commandments. And He wrote them on two tablets of stone. And the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and rules that you might do them in the land that you're going over to possess. Notice how a godly legacy is passed on to kids and grandkids. First, experiences of parents and grandparents with the Lord were not to depart from the heart of the parents and grandparents. Don't forget them. Keep them in the heart is what Moses said here. What the Israelites saw and heard at Mount Sinai, when the Lord thundered His voice and came down in such a frightening way on the mountain, along with the increasingly loud trumpet blasts, 
Who could forget that? The experience was so frightening. They told Moses, hey, Moses, you go. You go in front of the Lord, and you tell us what he's told you. We don't want to go there lest we die. You go. You go, Moses. We're afraid. Second, primarily the fathers, but also the mothers too, were to pass their heartfelt experiences onto their kids and grandkids. These things were to live in the hearts of the parents, not as mere mental exercises, not as mere religious activity. These things of the heart were to be passed on to the hearts of their kids and grandkids. These things were to be a way of life for them. Let's let me make an application here, a comment. Did you notice the difference as we were going through of the relationship that God's people were to have with the pagans and that of the kids? The Israelites were to faithfully live the ways of the Lord in front of the pagans for a witness, but they were to actively pass on a legacy to their kids and grandkids. Think passive and active. Moses did not tell the Israelites, now just bring all the pagans in. No, they were to live their lives with one another, and the pagans were to watch. This is like a passive witness. And then actively training those who would receive a spiritual heritage, though, that would take intense concentration, take tense, intense consistency to live the life before their kids and grandkids, not only in the public, but especially at home behind the closed doors. This was the active way of witness. As it was then, so it is now. The same pattern unfolds in the church. The Lord told His disciples two things about the world as it pertains our witness to our witness as people of God. So let's go to John 13, 34 and 35. Back to John again. Now, John 13, 34 and 35, again, is something that the Lord was telling His disciples the night before He was crucified. This was very important to Him. Now, we've heard this before. This is very familiar, but let's hear it again for the first time. Here's what Jesus said to His disciples. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. In these verses, who's the one another? It's fellow Christians. It's one another. Who are the all people? Obviously, it's Christians and non-Christians. In other words, non-Christians will know that we follow Christ when we do what? When we love fellow Christians. And I cannot emphasize this enough. See, when it comes to our witness, how often are we told, how often are we trained, how often are we basically commanded by many people to go out into the world and love non-Christians to show them that we are Christ's disciples? But what did Jesus say? We show the world that we're Christ's disciples if what? If we love fellow Christians. Now, that does not mean that we don't love non-Christians, far from it. But we love non-Christians in the way that God defines love, just like we love one another in the way that God defines love. Because you know the world and God has different ways of, and definition of love, right? 
See, God's definitions of love, descriptions of love are things like we, it's patient and kind and doesn't rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. The world's definition of love is what? Radical inclusion of everything. And if I don't accept you in every point in your life, no matter what it is, that means by definition, I hate you. That's what they're telling us. God's ways and the world's ways are vastly different when it comes to love. But we're supposed to love one another, and that's how the world will know that we're Christ's disciples. Second, Jesus said that the greatest witness that we can give to the world is our unity with one another, is how we take care of one another. That's the greatest witness that we can give to the world, living out God's ways between us. Jesus said this in John chapter 17, 21 to 23, and turn there a couple chapters over. And here is where he's praying to the Father. This is right before he gets, he gets arrested. I pray, Father, that they all may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us. Why? So that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory that you've given me, I've given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may become perfectly one, so that the world will know what? That you sent me and you love them even as you have loved me. When we are living together as one family of God, what do those in the world who watch us conclude? And you know they're watching us, right? Intensely watching us. What do they conclude when we are taking care of one another and we truly are loving one another? If Jesus can bring this ragtag group of people together from all walks of life and save them and they can get along with one another, then maybe, just maybe, the Lord can save me too. And I want me some of that. But the most important people that we are to live the ways of the Lord consistently in front of is our family, our kids, our grandkids. As we know, much more is caught by being around those that we love and respect than is taught. And our kids and grandkids, or those who consider us as father and mother figures, see the godly character as they do, as they see it forged in our lives. Because of our walk with the Lord, maybe they will desire to go the ways of the Lord as well. And lastly, let me encourage those of us who have kids and grandkids that they have nothing to do with the Lord. How many of us have kids and grandkids like that? You know, it's never too late to live for the Lord. It's never too late to make the attempt to seek to reconcile the relationships with your kids and grandkids. Or, by the way, any broken relationships that we have with our family members. Let's not forget that in all of our sins, in all of our failures, the Lord blesses repentance. And let's not forget as well that relationships are two-way streets. If we are actively reaching out to our kids and grandkids, trying to seek making reconciliation, they have to respond as well. We can't force them to do that. May the Lord be glorified as we make that process, make that attempt, and entrust our kids and grandkids into the Lord's hands. And finally, let's not forget intercessory prayer time, Tuesday nights. What time? 7 to 8. Seven, eight, 60 minutes. Be here as we pray for those in our families 
who are lost and those who have lost their way. So as we bring this message to a close, let's claim the privilege the Lord has given us to love our God and enjoy Him and glorify Him. He has given us eternal life. We are part of His royal forever family. His ways are vastly superior to the scraps that fall from the world's table. Let's stop gobbling them up. Let's say yes to the Lord and refuse to listen to what the world says. And in the, wrong, in the, in the words of songwriter Steve Green, may all who come behind us find us faithful. May the fire of our devotion light the way. May the footprints that we leave, lead them to believe, and the lives we live inspire them to obey. And with all the enemies that we have in the world training their sights upon the church that the devil hates so much, let's take comfort in that we, as the Lord's sheep, have such a strong shepherd. And I think it's a good thing that we should actually close out our service as we recite together the 23rd Psalm, one of the best psalms ever for those who are in troubled times. So let's recite together Psalm 23. It's on the screen. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for eternal truth, timeless truth. We thank you for the absolute, incredible, awesome privilege you've given your people. You, Lord, are with us. We don't have to pray that you be with us. You are with us. We don't have to overcome your reluctance to be with us because you delight to be with your people. And Lord, as, as we understand, Lord, as we have the pecking order straight, we are your servants, you own us, and Lord, we want to show you our love for you by obedience, by heartfelt, grateful obedience. And Lord, we want to get close to you. And Lord, you told us how to do that. You told us that if we loyally obey you, we stumble and fall, yes, but Lord, you understand this. And Lord, you pick us up when we fall. And Lord, you told us that forgiveness and reconciliation is possible with you as we confess our sins, as we repent. And Lord, you said, you promised that you and the Father will come and live with us. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for that promise. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for living within us. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for interceding for us with groanings too deep for words. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are interceding to the Father according to the will of God. I thank you, Lord, for your love for us. I thank you, Lord, that you've given us such a privileged status in the world, in the universe. Lord, help us to claim it. Help us to live it. Help us, to, Lord, to love you and to serve you 
to love you more and to serve you better because you loved us first. And I thank you now, Lord, for this time as we turn to our giving. I pray, Lord, that you help us to give from a heart that truly is overflowing, truly grateful for what you've done for us. Pray, Lord, that you help us to be good stewards of what you have allowed your people to give us today. And I pray now, Lord, as, as we turn our attention to our singing as well, help us to sing, Lord. Again, realizing that there are many people around the world cannot even raise their voice in song to you lest they get persecuted, lest they, some of them even die. Even, even places in our country, Lord, we cannot sing. Lord, help us to take advantage of this. Thank you, Lord, for what you are allowing us to do here. In Jesus' name, amen.